This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 20 Found and now I come to perhaps the strangest adventure that happened to us in all this strange business, and one which shows how wonderfully things are brought about. I was walking along quietly, some way in front of the other two, down the banks of the stream which runs from the oasis till it is swallowed up in the hungry desert sands, when suddenly I stopped and rubbed my eyes as well I might. There, not twenty yards in front of me, placed in a charming situation under the shade of a species of fig tree, and facing to the stream, was a cosy hut, built more or less on the Kaffir principle, with grass and withes, but having a full-length door instead of a bee-hole. What the dickens, said I to myself, can a hut be doing out here? Even as I said it, the door of the hut opened, and there limped out of it a white man clothed in skins, and with an enormous black beard. I thought that I must have got a touch of the sun. It was impossible. No hunter ever came to such a place as this. Certainly no hunter would ever settle in it. I stared and stared, and so did the other man, and just at that juncture Sir Henry and Good walked up. "'Look here, you fellows,' I said. "'Is that a white man, or am I mad?' Sir Henry looked, and Good looked, and then all of a sudden the lame white man with a black beard uttered a great cry and began hobbling towards us. When he was close, he fell down in a sort of faint. With a spring, Sir Henry was by his side. "'Great powers!' he cried. "'It is my brother George!' At the sound of this disturbance, another figure, also clad in skins, emerged from the hut, a gun in his hand, and ran towards us. On seeing me, he too gave a cry. Macumazon, he hollowed. Don't you know me, boss? I'm Jim the Hunter. I lost the note you gave me to give to the boss, and we have been here nearly two years. And the fellow fell at my feet and rolled over and over, weeping for joy. "'You careless scoundrel,' I said. "'You ought to be well jambocked.' "'That is, hided.' Meanwhile, the man with the black beard had recovered and risen, and he and Sir Henry were pump-handing away at each other, apparently without a word to say. But whatever they had quarreled about in the past, I suspect it was a lady, though I never asked, it was evidently forgotten now. "'My dear old fellow,' burst out Sir Henry at last, "'I thought you were dead. "'I have been over Solomon's Mountains to find you. "'I had given up all hope of ever seeing you again, "'and now I come across you perched in the desert "'like an old asphogel.' "'Vulture. "'I tried to cross Solomon's Mountains nearly two years ago,' "'was the answer, spoken in the hesitating voice of a man 
who has had little recent opportunity of using his tongue. But when I reached here, a boulder fell on my leg and crushed it, and I have been able to go neither forward nor back. Then I came up. How do you do, Mr. Neville, I said. Do you remember me? Why, he said, isn't it Hunter Quartermain, eh? And good, too. Hold on a minute, you fellows, I'm getting dizzy again. It is all so very strange, and when a man has ceased to hope, so very happy. That evening, over the campfire, George Curtis told us his story, which in its way was almost as eventful as our own and put shortly amounted to this. A little less than two years before, he had started from Sitanda's corral to try and reach Suleiman's burg. As for the note I had sent him by Jim, that worthy lost it, and he had never heard of it till today. But acting upon information he had received from the natives, he headed not for Sheba's breasts, but for the ladder-like descent of the mountains down which we had just come which is clearly a better route than that marked out in old Dom Silvestre's plan. In the desert, he and Jim had suffered great hardships, but finally they reached this oasis, where a terrible accident befell George Curtis. On the day of their arrival, he was sitting by the stream, and Jim was extracting the honey from the nest of a stingless bee, which is to be found in the desert on the top of a bank immediately above him. In so doing, he loosened a great boulder of rock, which fell upon George Curtis's right leg, crushing it frightfully. From that day he had been so lame that he found it impossible to go either forward or back, and had preferred to take the chance of dying in the oasis to the certainty of perishing in the desert. As for food, however, they got on pretty well, for they had a good supply of ammunition, and the oasis was frequented, especially at night, by large quantities of game, which came thither for water. These they shot, or trapped in pitfalls, using the flesh for food, and after their clothes wore out, the hides for clothing. And so, George Curtis ended, we have lived for nearly two years like a second Robinson Crusoe and his man Friday, hoping against hope that some natives might come here to help us away, but none have come. Only last night we settled that Jim should leave me and try to reach Sitanda's corral to get assistance. He was to go tomorrow, but I had little hope of ever seeing him back again. And now you, of all people in the world, you, who, as I fancied, had long ago forgotten all about me, and were living comfortably in old England, turn up in a promiscuous way and find me where you least expected. It is the most wonderful thing that I have ever heard of, and the most merciful, too. Then Sir Henry sat to work and told him the main facts of our adventures, "'sitting till late into the night to do it. "'By Jove,' said George Curtis, "'when I showed him some of the diamonds. "'Well, at least you have got something for your pains "'besides my worthless self.' "'Sir Henry laughed. "'They belong to Quartermain, and good. "'It was a part of the bargain "'that they should divide any spoils there might be. 
This remark set me thinking, and having spoken to Good, I told Sir Henry that it was our joint wish that he should take a third portion of the diamonds, or, if he would not, that his share should be handed to his brother, who had suffered even more than ourselves on the chance of getting them. Finally we prevailed upon him to consent to this arrangement, but George Curtis did not know of it until some time afterwards. Here at this point I think I shall end my history. Our journey across the desert back to Sitanda's Corral was most arduous, especially as we had to support George Curtis, whose right leg was very weak indeed, and continually threw out splinters of bone. But we did accomplish it somehow, and to give its details would only be to reproduce much of what happened to us on the former occasion. Six months from the date of our re-arrival at Sitanda's, where we found our guns and other goods quite safe, though the old rascal in charge was much disgusted at our surviving to claim them, saw us all once more safe and sound at my little place on the Berea, near Durban, where I am now writing. Thence I bid farewell to all who have accompanied me through the strangest trip I ever made in the course of a long and varied experience. P.S. Just as I had written the last word, a kaffir came up my avenue of orange trees, carrying a letter in a cleft stick, which he had brought from the post. It turned out to be from Sir Henry, and as it speaks for itself, I give it in full. October 1, 1884, Brayley Hall, Yorkshire. My dear Quartermain, I send you a line a few mails back to say that the three of us, Good, George, and myself, fetched up all right in England. We got off the boat at Southampton and went up to town. You should have seen what a swell Good turned out to be the very next day beautifully shaved, frock coat fitting like a glove, brand new eyeglass, etc., etc. I went and walked in the park with him, where I met some people I know, and at once told him the story of his beautiful white legs. He is furious, especially as some ill-natured person has printed it in a society paper. To come to business, Good and I took the diamonds to Streeters, to be valued, as we arranged, and really I am afraid to tell you what they put them at. It seems so enormous. They say that, of course, it is more or less guesswork, as such stones have never to their knowledge been put on the market in anything like such quantities. It appears that with the exception of one or two of the largest, they are of the finest water, and equal in every way to the best Brazilian stones. I asked them if they would buy them, but they said it was beyond their power to do so, and recommended us to sell by degrees, over a period of years indeed, for fear lest we should flood the market. They offer, however, a hundred and eighty thousand for a very small portion of them. You must come home, Quartermain, and see about these things, especially if you insist upon making the magnificent present of the third share, which does not belong to me to my brother George. As for good, he is no good. His time is too much occupied in shaving, 
and other matters connected with the vain adorning of the body. But I think he is still down on his luck about Fulata. He told me that since he had been home, he hadn't seen a woman to touch her, either as regards her figure or the sweetness of her expression. I want you to come home, my dear old comrade, and to buy a house near here. You have done your day's work, and have lots of money now, and there is a place for sale quite close which would suit you admirably. Do come, the sooner the better. You can finish writing the story of our adventures on board ship. We have refused to tell the tale till it is written by you, for fear lest we shall not be believed. If you start on receipt of this, you will reach here by Christmas, and I book you to stay with me for that. Good is coming, and George, and so, by the way, is your boy Harry. There's a bribe for you. I have had him down for a week's shooting, and like him. He's a cool young hand. He shot me in the leg, cut out the pellets, and then remarked upon the advantages of having a medical student with every shooting party. Goodbye, old boy. I can't say any more, but I know that you will come, if it is only to oblige your sincerest friend, Henry Curtis. P.S. The tusks of the great bull that killed poor Kiva have now been put up in the hall here, over the pair of buffalo horns you gave me, and look magnificent. And the axe with which I chopped off Twala's head is fixed above my writing table. I wish that we could have managed to bring away the coats of chain armor. Don't lose poor Fulata's basket in which you brought away the diamonds. H.C. Today is Tuesday. There is a steamer going on Friday, and I really think that I must take Curtis at his word and sail by her for England. If it is only to see you, Harry, my boy, and to look after the printing of this history, which is a task that I do not like to trust to anybody else. Alan Quartermain The End <laughs>